Let's pray together. Uh, God, as we, uh, as we enter this part of the service when we open up your word of life and we hear from it, uh, God, we admit together that sometimes your words are just plain confusing. Um, God, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be on each and every one of us this morning as we look at uh, more of these confusing words and to try to figure out, Lord, not just what it means, but how uh, by reading it, by understanding it, we can, we can love you and live like you uh, even, even more this week. Um, God, if you could grant us that gift, uh, we are deeply grateful and graced by your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, we will be uh, continuing this series, this fun series that I've gotten so many comments about called, He Said What? The Crazy Sayings of Jesus. Um, and, and there's another crazy saying coming up. But just uh, before we get into it, I do want to mention that the, uh, the final uh, installment of this series is going to be next week. And uh, in many ways, I feel like it's, a, it's an exclamation point. Really, I mean, it's a, it's a grand finale because I think of all of the crazy sayings that we've taken a look at, next week is probably the craziest one of them all. It's when Jesus says in Luke 14, and these are Jesus' words, that much we have to admit, Jesus says, um, I tell you uh, that unless you hate your, your family, your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, and even yourself, you cannot be my disciple, <laughs> Just bizarre words, um, and, and what I'm so looking forward to is that I'm not responsible for that one. Brian is. So <laughs> good luck in God's feet, sir. Uh, uh, this morning, um, maybe, maybe less like, con- or, uh, uh, difficult words, but more just confusing words that we take a look at uh, on Jesus and our crazy saying uh, on the docket uh, here this morning. Um, it's weird what we're just about to get into. And I just want to give you that warning that, that I'm sort of uncomfortable with it to begin with, and I think you might be too. It's, it's weird. Because this morning we pull back the curtain and we take a look at things of this world that we don't always think about that often. Things of this world that are sort of uncomfortable for us to think about. Jesus is, is going to say these words regarding Satan, regarding devils, and, 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 and the spiritual realm that... To be completely honest, if you're like me, you want to say something along the lines of, you know, I believe that it exists, I believe that it's out there, I just, I don't know quite what to make of it. And so we kind of go throughout the year not really making much of it. C.S. Lewis, a theologian and author, uh, just an incredible um, insight into this very topic. In his, uh, in his wonderful work, I'd recommend it, The Screwtape Letters. But in the beginning of that book, he says, um, he says there are two errors that we can make when we talk about these forces. Uh, two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, the devils that is, by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. He wrote those words in 1942, and I think they're still true now as they were then. We have these, these two extremes, uh, errors, that we can lean to, right? One is to believe, as I just said, that, well, it's uncomfortable to think about, so, so maybe... Maybe we won't. You know, maybe we can just believe that maybe it's, it's not real, it doesn't exist. Then the other extreme is to be so absolutely um, fascinated and riveted by it, by, by it consumes us and all of our attention. And C.S. Lewis correctly, I think, says, now we have to stay in between these somehow. 
And I think the happy middle ground to this is to believe that it exists, but not really do anything about it, and not talk about it, not change the way we act or pray or, or live. That's the comfortable middle ground we've come to. There's just one small problem with that. Jesus tended to take another view. <laughs> he chose to address it head on. And as uncomfortable as it seems, and as, quite frankly, as weird as it seems, since he addressed it, we ought to too. So if, if you'll sort of like indulge us together here as we move forward into the weirdness <laughs> together and, and as we explore this theme. Uh, these are the words of Jesus when he says in uh, Luke chapter 10, and I'll just get the crazy statement out of the way first. He replied, that's Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You can see how uncomfortable it makes us. Even just the idea of talking about what do you, Satan, like the, the great tempter, right, the accuser. What does it mean that I saw him fall from heaven? It even gets weirder. We have kind of a rough outline that we're going to work through this morning where it just says, you know, what we think that uh, it means, what he really meant, and then how in the world is this applicable for this week coming into, you know, our work weeks ahead. Um, but first of all, what we, uh, what we think it means, this line has, has been sort of blown up into this long uh, tradition of, of how exactly this works. As the tradition goes, Satan is uh, sort of uh, God's enemy. You, you think about um, what he might look like, and the image that you probably come to mind is, is red with horns and the, the spiky tail and hooves and, and a pitchfork, and, and kind of all of these ideas, like everything, it, it has a long history to it that you could incorporate, but most of that honestly comes from, like, children's cartoons. But we have this idea about who he is, and then, then there's, we start peeking into this just behind the curtain a little bit, and, and we start to see this long history, this tradition behind it. We'll say, where did he... Where did he come from anyway? Like, what's, what's it all about? And as the tradition goes, that, that Satan wasn't always evil, wasn't always bad, wasn't always a, a great tempter, but the, the tradition that I think most of us um, have heard, at least in the past, or, or maybe would hear, given long enough, is that Satan at one point w was good. He was, he was next to God. He was close to God. If you kind of wanted to, to rank like angels or forces, you could say that he was even uh, up uh, above higher than all that, that he was so close to God. And his name wasn't always Satan, the, um, literally the, the accuser. Um, but instead, he was name was Lucifer, which means bringer of light, or maybe more, it, it could be done, the, the morning star. Something very, very good not very, very bad. And as the tradition goes that there was a falling out between Satan and God and he was like booted out of heaven. But when the morning star gets booted out of heaven, it's not just like, please leave, but it's like a lightning bolt streaking across the sky, hitting the ground or maybe something beneath, getting kicked out. And we think this is what this line is referring to when Jesus says, listen, I was there before all of time. I was there when God kicked him out, gave him the boot, and he went out screaming across the sky, like a bolt of lightning out of heaven. And this starts to answer questions for us, like, where did he come from anyway? 
In the first few pages in the book of Genesis, in the whole Bible, we have Satan, the serpent, tempting Adam and Eve, the first couple. And you kind of wonder, I mean, if God created everything good, where does, where does this badness come in? Where does evil come into that? Okay, he, he was created, it's good turned bad. So God didn't create anything bad, he just, so it kind of kicks it back a notch. It, it answers some questions about where did he come from, but... But there's a problem. The problem is that entire tradition, that entire line of thought, that maybe you heard about it, maybe you won't, but perhaps someday will. None of that is in the Bible. It's kind of a glaring oversight, right? There are references here and there. But none of it actually lays it out. You, you kind of think that maybe in, the, maybe in the middle part, you know, at the end of the Old Testament with all the names that are hard to pronounce, it's probably in there. And if it's not there, it's definitely in the craziness in the back in the book of Revelation where stuff is going down and who's got any idea what's happening. It's probably there. Like this whole thing is spelled out. It's not in there either. There are references, there are some lines that get like pushed, hodgepodged all together to, to make that story happen. But you won't find that story laid out in the Bible anywhere. You can trust me. I read it. <laughs> I'm not sure why you laugh at that. but uh, <laughs> It did, though, come out of a very long-standing tradition that, that where people started reading these part, parts of the Bible and everybody kind of added their own thoughts. And by the time everyone adds their own thoughts over several centuries, the story starts to get compiled as to how all of this happened. And then it's sort of ironed out for its consistencies and it sort of makes sense. And we get a little bit more comfortable with it as time goes by. One of those stories that I think captures the essence of it so well and became so popular, the time when I think it went from just theoretical kind of ideas around to, no, I think this was really happened, is this monumental, hugely influential, wildly popular work by John Milton called Paradise Lost. I want to read the line. This is from 1667 is when it was published. Him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell. In adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Milton goes on and on in, in extremely poetic, uh, poetic uh, prose and, and profound words as well. Many of these lines taken right from the Bible like this, hurling out of heaven. The work is so popular that over the course of the late 1600s and the 1700s and 1800s, people got to know this and started adopting this storyline as the one that actually happened, as the biblical storyline, since a lot of these lines were taken from the Bible. And it's still popular among English majors everywhere, studying Paradise Lost, Paradise Found, from 19, or sorry, 1667, that long ago. It has that kind of staying power. The problem, again is this storyline was compiled long after Christ's work here on earth. And there are some Bible passages about this. There are some lines referencing, like, it wasn't just taken out of thin air in a deceiving kind of way. Um, the next one is, this is from the book of Isaiah that gets to it, Isaiah 14. Uh, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? 
It's almost a, a kind of a rehashing of the, of the Luke passage in the New Testament words of Jesus. We have this Lucifer falling from heaven, son of the morning, or the morning star, or the bringer of light, Lucifer. It's, it's that line. And so you think, okay, Satan must be this Lucifer, this bringer of light. You can kind of see how the story starts to build on itself and starts to get pop, more and more popular, especially when Milton adds his piece. Again, the problem with the one is, is, is that he's not talking about Satan here is that when Isaiah is writing this, the common uh, 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 pseudonym for the emperor of Babylon was morning star or bringing her of light. It's that same title that's capitalized here, Lucifer. It's much, much more likely that in Isaiah's time, he's writing down his words and and he's writing not, not about Satan and the devil forces. He's writing about the guy in the thorn, throne right now. He's writing about the king of Babylon who is called Lucifer, the, the morning star. That's how highly regarded he was. And he was writing, I'll tell you, he was writing to say to him and to everybody else around, this will not continue forever. The people, the Israelites in exile, this will not continue forever and ever. There, there will be a debt to pay. He will not get away with it. People cannot be mistreated. God cannot be neglected forever and ever. At some point, even if it's the king of Babylon, the morning star, justice will be done. God will see to it. I just want us to see, not that the tradition is entirely wrong or misguided. I don't want to go there. Frankly, I have no idea. And I'd say maybe most people don't. But, but just to say that when Jesus mentions this, this weird phrase about I, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a bolt of lightning. He's not talking about something in the distant past. He's not talking about before all of time. Sort of begs the question, well, what is he talking about then? He shares this line right, right after, in the midst of even, an important event. He had just recruited and, and, and sent out and commissioned 72 uh, followers, 72 disciples. And he divided them up into teams of two, so 36 pairs. And he goes, goes to every town, village, countryside, knock on every door, find as many people as you can, and start to share the message. Which message? The message of the kingdom of God. Tell them what life like God is like. Show them in real terms. And the disciples, the pairs, in 36 pairs, the teams, they go out and they cover a lot of ground. And what they find is that they're able to heal these diseases and they're able to feed the starving and they'll be able to do this incredible work. And then they tell them about that Jesus Christ, the king, is here and he's going to set up this kingdom. And this is what it's like in the kingdom of God that there isn't any disease, there isn't any famine, there isn't any poverty, and there's peace and there's wholeness all the way around. This is who the Christ 
is. And they're so fired up, and when they come back, they, they report to Jesus. And this is the, the rest of the, the contents, uh, context on the back of the sheet here, where we see the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The context of when he says that isn't randomly talking about the beginning of all time. He's talking about what happened when they went out on this journey, on this, this mission. When they divided up into 36 pairs and told hundreds, maybe even thousands of people about what life with God is like, when they healed all these diseases and the demons submitted to them, he said it was at that moment, it was then, that the Satan, the adversary, was taken down a notch. In Jesus' context, in his culture, what it meant, what it meant to, to think about the, the adversary, the Satan or, or Satan in, in the Old Testament, I think is the best place to go to it is in the book of Job. Because what, how you accused somebody, which is another phrase for him, is you would, if you wanted to accuse your friend of stealing something from you, you would take your evidence, your witness, and you would take the person that you're accusing, and you'd all go before a judge. And there, as the accuser, you would make your case. This is why I think he stole from me. This is what he stole. This is his punishment. And the judge would hear all of this, and the judge would say to the uh, defendant, either you're guilty, here's your punishment, or he would say to the accuser, I think you made this whole thing up. Here's your punishment. Probably not the best system, but anyway, it, it's what they had. In, in this role to play, we can, we can kind of think of it as a loosely in the, the defendant kind of prosec, uh, prosecution type of, of setting with a judge making the decision and then witnesses as evidence. In the book of Job, this is spelled out not on human terms, but on spiritual terms, where the, the uh, adversary, Satan, his job is to be the prosecution. His job is to be the accuser. This is just the role that he plays. I thought it was fascinating thinking, like, wait a second, we kind of wonder where this guy comes from, but even, if, even in, in heaven, uh, part of the creation is to, to root out um, unrighteousness, to root out injustice wherever it may be. And, and so the necessary component of that is a party whose job it is just to make sure that we're fulfilling all righteousness and, and wholeness and peace. And if there's anything that, that lacks that or contradicts that, there's someone's job to make sure that that is, is corrected, is righted. Where Satan comes in in the book of Job is that this one loves to accuse. <laughs> he loves to prosecute and takes so much joy in the prosecution that he even goes to the extent of, of tempting someone just to get them to fall so he'd have another person to prosecute, to accuse, to bring before the judge and to say, look at how she messed up. Look at how he fell flat. This is exactly happening in the book of Job when the accuser, the enemy, Satan, says to God, you think he's so good. Just, just 
Let me, let me pull a few things on him here. Let me pull out the rug from him. I won't touch him. Just touch his, his stuff, his possession, his source of income. You'll see. He'll turn on you in a heartbeat. And then I'll be there to accuse him. As the story unfolds, Satan doesn't do just that, but takes away everything from Job. And when that doesn't work, he even, he even lays hands on him and gives him these boils. And he's in incredible pain. And his friends come to him and say, listen, just curse God and die. Just get this over with, friend. And Job says, I will not. I don't know why all of this is happening, but I will not. Satan lacked somebody to accuse that day. His job wasn't fulfilled. This is who he is. This is how, what role he has as the accuser. In a passage like this, Jesus is making a case that when the disciples went out, I would even say, when you go out, when I go out this week, and I show people and you show people what the kingdom of God is like, you take the adversary, the accuser, the Satan down a notch. Problem is, we double and redouble our efforts and see little results. Problem is, we, we commit, again, the devotional life has been kind of a wreck, but you know what, I'm, I'm going to try it again. I got a new book, or I'm going to start a new Bible study, and, and we're going we're gonna to jumpstart this one one more time, and, and we're going to do this right. And only a short while goes by before you realize, I feel like I'm missing missing more opportunities, more times uh, with the devotions that I'm, that I'm hitting. I'm going to pray for you this week. I'm committing to it. I want to do this. I'm setting, you know, a little iPhone alarm clock. And almost immediately, out of sight, out of mind, totally forget. I'm going to show people the kingdom of God. I'm going to show people that life with God, there shouldn't be any sickness or, 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 or hunger. So I'm going to do my small part and do what I can. But the, the bag of clothes to give away to Goodwill or Salvation Army is still sitting in the garage next to the car. It's like, why, why can't I do this? And sometimes right, we just need a win, I mean, if Christ here is pulling back the curtain and he's saying, when you show people the kingdom of God and rob the accuser of something to accuse, you bring the, the devil, demons, the Satan, you bring it down a notch. A battle is won. I think so often we just need that start. We just need the win. Keep in mind, though, that whatever wins we have are not ours. Because just as one, if you think of the one being accused, the defendant and the accuser, 
It isn't by our strength or power that, that we're found innocent. We're not found innocent at all. The, the debt simply has been paid by Christ on the cross. It, it's reflected toward him. And, and he even mentions that before the deed has even happened. In the last verse, verse 20, however, he says, Do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. Like, forget about taking the devil down a notch. This is what's really important. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In this last line by Milton, which I, which I love, again, in Paradise Lost, because it's a, a paraphrase of this exactly. Um, Rejoice, not ye that spirits of ill yield to your prowess in the fight, which is the first part. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, but in more beautifully uh, worded English language, but joy because your Father God hath writ your names elect for life. You need a win. You need to see some progress. We all do. God has the win. Christ was only a few chapters away from accomplishing the win on the cross. And this morning, we especially have uh, the opportunity to celebrate his win through us taking the devil down a notch by celebrating communion together. A time when we come around the table as a community and we recognize that Christ triumphed over the devil once and for all. That the progress is still continuing, is still raging on, but the decisive victory has been won. If you are here this morning and you're still curious or just like wondering, maybe, maybe you've been doing it on your own and trying to push, a, push the stone uphill and just getting so tired and so exhausted and just need a partner, a senior partner to come alongside you and to give you some help. I invite you to come to the table. And enjoy the, the refreshing uh, strength, the spiritual food, the nutrition that's, that nourishes our soul here in communion with God, through God, in Christ, is our win. In just a minute, you'll be invited forward, and there'll be two stations, one on either side. The uh, gluten-free one is the, at each one, is the one with the uh, cellophane wrapping around it. Um, feel free to take that, even if that's not a concern for you. Um, I invite you to come forward using the outside aisles, and then use the uh, inside aisles to go back to your seat. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly God, uh, we acknowledge this morning that you have... You have defeated evil. You have won for us. God, we long to see the day when the war is complete, when the battles are done, when we don't struggle any longer. But God, this morning, during this incredible act of joining with you, of experiencing you at communion, Lord, we pray that you give us a vision about what life is like with you, that, that you feed our, our hungry souls and give us the spiritual nourishment to face whatever lies ahead this week. In your name we pray. Amen.